Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Ohio. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. If you've ever been to Apple Creek, Ohio, you've probably seen a horse and buggy or five. There's a huge Amish community, and it's an Amish community that 30-year-old Barbara Weaver was born and raised in. Growing up, there were strict rules to protect her particular community against the influences of the outside world that make life complicated. You couldn't own a vehicle or a cell phone unless it was for business use. There was no electricity in the house or even refrigerators. They had to keep their food cold with ice boxes. In the times we live in now where our lives are literally built around convenience, everything that they lacked in convenience, they really made up for in community. When we think of community, we probably think about neighborhoods, schools, parks, and sports. But for the Amish community in Apple Creek, it was more about leaning on each other for everything they needed, which wound up making neighbors and friends more like your literal family. Instead of relying on everything the world had to offer, they relied on each other. Different families throughout the community ran small businesses, sewed their own clothes, raised their own animals, and everything in between. The roles in the Amish community are extremely traditional. They marry young, have as many kids as life gives them, and the woman of the house generally stays home to take care of and teach the kids, while the man of the house usually provides. And that's exactly what Barbara and her husband Eli did. According to a book by Greg Olson and Rebecca Morris called A Killing in Amish Country, Barbara and Eli met right after the two of them finished their rumspringa. Rumspringa is something the Amish community allows for their teens to see if the Amish faith is something they're ready to be baptized into. When they turn 16, they can go out into the English world to try all the things previously forbidden and get it out of their system without really having to worry about any consequences. Some Amish teens go hard with partying and drinking and whatever else, but that's not what Barbara did. She wasn't interested in it at all. Her dreams were simple, to fall in love, get married, and raise a family. So when it was time for her rumspringa, she did not go hog wild. According to Oxygen, she opted for staying in the area with her best girlfriends, having sleepovers, and reading Amish romance novels. Little did she know, she was about to become the star of what she thought was going to be her own. As Barbara's rumspringa was coming to an end, so was Eli's. They were obviously teenagers at the time, and Eli had one hell of a reputation, both good and bad, but forgiveness was a massive part of their lifestyle, so the bad was really overshadowed by the good. I can't tell you how many people I've seen quoted as saying that he was charming and attractive, and basically every descriptive word used to allude to the fact that he had what all the ladies wanted. Regardless of whether or not the Amish teens rounding the age of marriage wanted Eli, Eli wanted Barbara. They had a quick teenage romance, and before they knew it, the two were married. Barbara's dreams of her own Amish romance were coming true, and the checks on her bucket list just kept coming. The couple moved into a cute little house tucked away in the community. Eli opened a sporting goods store for everyone's hunting and fishing needs, and over the next seven years, Oxygen reports that the two had five children three boys and two girls. Everything seemed perfect. 
When Eli would go to work, which was in a little building right beside their house, Barbara would stay home, tend to the house, cook, clean, teach the kids, and help out the other moms and wives in the community. To say that everyone seemed to know each other would be the understatement of the century. I mean, they even knew each other's schedules. On the morning of July 2nd, 2009, one of Barbara's neighbors was woken up by Barbara and Eli's oldest son. According to News 5, he told the neighbor that he tried to wake up mommy, but he couldn't. Obviously, the neighbor was a little panicked, but nothing really sinister ever happens out there, so she walked over to the house to make sure everything was okay. Maybe Barbara just wasn't feeling good or was sleeping harder than normal, but that wasn't the case at all. The neighbor walked into the house and made her way to Barbara's room, and when she got there, it was clear that something was very, very wrong. Barbara was sprawled across the bed, and she could clearly see that there was blood seeping through the comforter. She took a closer look at Barbara, and according to the book A Killing in Amish Country, her lips were blue, she wasn't breathing at all, and she was cold to the touch. Barbara Weaver was dead. Most of the time, when it comes to problems within the Amish community, they handle it themselves. Rarely, if ever, do the police get brought in, but this wasn't something that could be handled in-house. With that, the neighbor ran to a community phone in a little shack by Eli's store and called 911. It didn't take long for deputies to arrive, and with the help of the neighbor, they found their way down the long, winding road that led to Barbara and Eli's house and into Barbara's room. When they found her, it was clear that the neighbor was right. Barbara was dead and had been shot in the chest at close range. In crime scene photos from the show Murder in Amish Country, you can see that she had been shot through the comforter that was still covering her body. There were six kids in the house that night, her and Eli's five children and one of their nieces. At some point after she put everyone to bed, Barbara had either shot herself or someone had come into that house with the sole intent of killing Barbara and only Barbara. The first order of business for the sheriff's department was to check for any guns on or around Barbara's body. If she had shot herself, the gun shouldn't be hard to find, but they found nothing. Sure, there were guns in the house, but none of them were out of place and none of them were anywhere near her. Just to cross their T's and dot their I's, Oxygen reports that they tested her hands for gunshot residue, and it was negative. Barbara had not shot herself, which meant that this was now a murder investigation. But who would want to kill her? Who would have any motive whatsoever? She lived the exact opposite of any kind of definition you want to tack onto the term of high-risk lifestyle. Frankly, she never really went anywhere to even have the chance to make an enemy, and it seemed extremely unlikely that anyone who did know her would have any reason to want her dead. Sheriff's deputies needed to figure out who in the wild hell would have any motive to kill Barbara. And that started with trying to figure out where her husband Eli was because he was definitely not at the house. Through witness interviews with the few people comfortable enough to talk to English detectives, 
Oxygen reports that investigators were able to figure out that Eli was an hour or so away fishing on Lake Erie with some friends and that he left around 3 a.m. that morning. Apparently, this was a pretty regular thing for him. One of the people in the community knew the guys that Eli went fishing with, and because one of them was English as opposed to Amish, they knew that he had a cell phone with him. Because of that, Murder in Amish Country reports that they were able to call that friend and get the message to Eli that his wife had been murdered and that they needed him to come back home. Eli seemed to be in shock and told police that he'd have everyone pick up and head back into town. Four hours later, Oxygen reports that he finally made his way to the sheriff's office. I've seen different reports on Eli's demeanor while he was at the sheriff's office. Some say that he seemed like a completely distraught husband, and others say that he was strangely calm. That being said, the dude was there for the whole day, so there's a good chance that both are correct, depending on which hour of questioning you're talking about. Eli told deputies that he had nothing to do with his wife's murder and that he didn't know why anyone would want to kill her. I mean, what else did anyone expect him to say? Deputies asked Eli if they could search his house and asked if they could do a gunshot residue test on him. And according to Oxygen, Eli didn't hesitate to cooperate at all. His fishing alibi had clearly checked out, the gunshot residue test came back negative, and the search of the house came up empty. There were no signs of forced entry, nothing had been stolen, and none of the guns in the house were the one used to kill Barbara. Eli seemed to be checking off all the boxes of an innocent grieving husband, but there was something about this guy that wasn't sitting right with detectives. They knew something was off, they just couldn't put their finger on it. So, when in doubt, keep asking questions. Detectives questioned Eli for hours, and eventually, he came clean. But not about murder. Murder in Amish country reports that he told police that he had had an affair. Not one, but two affairs. Now, that changes things. One, it was clear that Eli and Barbara's marriage was far from the perfect Amish romance novel that Barbara had dreamed about, and there were now three people to look into. Was it possible that Eli killed his wife to be with one of these other women? Was it possible that one of those women killed Barbara so that they could be with Eli? At the very least, detectives finally had something to go on. So when Eli was eventually released from questioning, they started to do a little digging. That digging was thrown off the next day when someone noticed that the answering machine for the Amish community phone in the shack by Eli's store had a message. According to court documents, the message said, Eli, you can run, but you can't hide. Obviously, we got the wrong person last night. Some strange man on the end of this answering machine was trying to say that whoever killed Barbara had actually meant to kill Eli, but somehow mistook him at close range for his wife. Seemed unlikely, but it was another avenue for investigators to go down, one that would either wind up helping the investigation or distracting from it. On 
Unlike the English community, non-Amish, the Amish community doesn't have push notifications of news on their phones because they don't have phones. They don't check news websites for updates because they don't have computers to do that with. So all anyone really knew was that Eli had gone on a fishing trip only to have his wife killed while she was home alone with the kids, and now someone was saying that it was actually him that they intended to kill. The Weaver household became somewhat of a community meeting place. Whatever Eli and the kids needed, the Amish community was there to give it to them. Childcare, food, time to sleep, you name it, they were there for Eli and the kids. When it came time for Barbara's funeral, the entire community, and then some, showed up, except for one couple. Barbara and Eli had been really close friends with the Raber family. Barbara Raber, Edward Raber, and their three kids. They'd met a decade or so beforehand and really hit it off. According to Oxygen, Barbara Raber, who we're just going to refer to as Raber at this point, had left the Amish community a while back, but was a conservative Mennonite who lived just outside of town. Being a Mennonite, she was able to have the amenities that her Amish friends couldn't. So when it came to things like needing a ride into town for, you know, a fishing trip, Raber was essentially an Uber driver for the Amish. She knew damn near everyone, and the fact that she hadn't showed up for Barbara's funeral was enough to make members of the community raise some eyebrows. Eventually, word of Raber's absence made its way to detectives working on the case, so she became person number one that they wanted to talk to next. They tracked her down and started asking some questions about her relationship with the Weavers, and eventually Raber admitted to having a full-blown sexual affair with Eli, one that Murder in Amish Country reports had gone back 10 years, but according to her, had ended long before Barbara was killed. With word of mouth starting to spread about Eli and Raber's affair, a second woman came forward on her own to tell police that she, too, had had an affair with Eli. And according to Oxygen, he had made some really fucked up comments about Barbara while they were together, like asking her if he'd help him kill her, telling her to run Barbara over if she ever saw her in the driveway, and mentioning that he knew which mushrooms were poisonous. Eli would always follow up his insane comments with something along the lines of, I'm just kidding. I am fully aware that the comments we just talked about are a lot of homicidal red flags to digest all at once, but I want to dial it down to just one of them, and it's not the mushroom one. If Eli was having an affair with another woman, in what situation would she have ever even had the opportunity to see Barbara in her own driveway? Why would she have been anywhere near their house? If Eli was having an affair, certainly he wouldn't be doing it anywhere near his house because that's where Barbara and the kids always were. But alas, Eli was a shitbag of a husband. According to Murder in Amish Country, at one point, this sexual affair took place on the floor of Eli's hunting goods store, which was right beside his house. In fact, someone actually walked in on the two of them, and while the woman was mortified, Eli didn't seem to have a single fuck to spare about it. He wasn't worried that anyone was going to tell on him or that there would be any consequences for his actions. The affair with woman number two didn't last long, but much like his affair with Raber, the two stayed friends. The whole multiple affairs thing was shocking enough, but the detectives were more curious about how Eli even met woman number two, because again, just like Raber, she wasn't Amish either. 
Where could he have even met her in the first place, let alone had a way to contact her to set up any times to hook up? As it turns out, while Eli appeared to be living a life by the regulations of his community, he most certainly was not. Woman number two told deputies that she'd met Eli online and that they'd kept in touch through his cell phone. Oxygen reports that she'd met him on a website called MocoSpace, which I'd never heard of, so I looked it up, and it's basically exactly like MySpace with the layouts, glitter fonts, friends list, and quirky display names. If you're wondering what Eli's quirky display name was, it was Amish Stud, which he most certainly was not, and color me petty, but it's that kind of day. He put on his profile that he was looking for women between the ages of 18 and 35 and asked, who wants to sleep with an Amish dude? Eli's adorable, loving, selfless wife was home alone raising his five children while he went fishing all the time, hooked up with women he met on the internet, and according to the New York Post, befriended people with usernames like Too Much Ass, 69 Smiley Girl, and Naughty Little Sexy Sex Slave. With a friends list like that, deputies knew that there was a good chance that woman number two was actually woman number something else, so the sheriff's department kept digging. First things first, they needed to figure out how he was accessing the internet at all. If they could get a hold of the computer or cell phone, who knows what else they could find. That's where woman number two comes back in. She was ready and willing to help the investigation any way that she could, and right then and there called the number that she had saved for Eli and left him a message asking about what was going on. Old habits die hard, and Oxygen reports that Eli got back to his once-upon-a-time mistress almost immediately. He told her that his wife had been killed and that he was staying at his parents' house. She didn't give a solitary shit about where he was staying because, frankly, no one did. That wasn't the point at all. The mission had been accomplished. They knew Eli's cell number, and they could start to pull the records to try and piece things together. And piece by piece, they did. The first thing they realized when they ran Eli's cell number was that it wasn't registered under his name. No, no. According to the book A Killing in Amish Country, Eli's cell phone was registered under Raber's Friends and Family Plan, which meant that that merry band of assholes had a lot of explaining to do. And so it began. With the verification that those two had clearly left some hefty details out of their stories, detectives dove deeper into their digital lives and found an avalanche of incrimination. I hate saying that criminals are morons because it's their stupidity that gets them caught, and that's a good thing, but these two were fucking idiots. It's like they'd never heard of a phone call and instead detailed every single fucked up homicidal idea they'd ever had via text message. According to Oxygen, Raper had texted Eli several different times with suggestions like giving Barbara something to make her sleep, spicing a cupcake with medication, and getting a can of carbon dioxide to leak under her bed and make it look like carbon monoxide poisoning. Obviously, she's not the brains of any major scientific institutions, but let's be honest, we're not expecting much out of these two at this point. Considering the fact that they were willing to discuss poisoning Barbara with gas, you have to take into account the fact that five kids also lived in that house, but Eli couldn't have given a single fuck. At one point, Oxygen reports that Eli suggested Raper just blow up the house, 
And when she asked him about the kids, I shit you not, this monster told him, it's okay, they're innocent, they'll go to heaven. Detectives realized that there was going to be a mountainous trail of digital evidence in this case, so they decided to seize everything with a keyboard that Raber had ever touched. Through four different computers, they found more than 840 searches for things like poison gases, ways to get rid of someone, and suicide. It goes without saying that there's no surveillance that shows you who searched for what on a computer in a household with five people in it, but if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, and Raber was most definitely a duck. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. On the morning of Barbara Weaver's murder, detectives found a series of text messages between Eli and Raber, almost scripting out what had happened leading up to and after the killing. Court documents, Oxygen, and A Killing in Amish Country did a phenomenal job at compiling these texts, so the following is going to come from there. On June 1st, the day before Barbara's murder, Raper texted Eli that the next day would be a good day to do it because he'd be out of town on that fishing trip. On June 2nd, the day of the murder, Eli left the house just after 3 a.m. and texted Raber, morning, bottom door is open. At 3.03 a.m., Raber texted Eli that she was worried about not being able to see in the dark because, well, it was 3 a.m. and they didn't have electricity. It took about 20 minutes, but eventually Eli casually texted her back saying, take a light with you, hun, moi. The romanticizing of homicide here is painful. After that, Raber sent some text about being scared and asking if she could drive behind the pines, you know, getting approval for parking logistics so she could get to the house unseen. And in time, Eli sent Raber a text reminding her not to leave anything behind. Between those last texts and the call Eli got while he was fishing, Barbara was shot and killed in her home. Raber texted Eli later that afternoon, telling him, Whatever you do, don't give them your cell phone, please. And then asked him about changing their phone numbers, hoping that it would make them untraceable. Raber had enough knowledge about cell phone tracing to know that it would be an investigative tool into the murder of her lover's wife, but in a really odd turn of events, court documents state that it wasn't her phone number she changed, you know, the one that would have pinged as she made her way to Barbara's house, 
Instead, she changed Eli's. Why, I couldn't tell you. But regardless, it didn't help either of them get away with anything. And in the end, everything they did before, during, and after Barbara's murder is exactly what got them caught. The investigation into Barbara's murder was intense, but it actually didn't last long at all. It only took them eight days to arrest both Raber and Eli on suspicion of aggravated murder. When the police got to Raber's house, which according to murder in Amish country was a scene straight out of hoarders, she basically fell out and started asking about her kids, what about her kids, and all of that. Something she had clearly put zero thought into when deciding to bring homicide into her personal affairs. Not her three kids and not Barbara's five kids, aside from that brief moment where she wondered what would happen to them if she just blew up Barbara and Eli's house. After taking Raber into custody, deputies marched on over to Eli's house and arrested him too. His children not only had to find their mom murdered in their home with their dad conveniently absent to protect them from the trauma of that situation, they had to watch their father be arrested on the suspicion that he was behind the act that caused that trauma. Those children not only lost a mother, but they also lost a father. And for what? Investigators still had a lot of questions that needed to be answered, so it was back to the interrogation board. For Raber, it was confession time. Well, kind of. She admitted that she'd killed Barbara, but she said it was an accident. She said that she'd just gone there to scare her, but that when she got to Barbara's bedroom door, the shotgun accidentally went off. After that, she says she went back home and put the shotgun back into her husband's gun cabinet. She said that it was all Eli's idea and that he had begged her to kill his wife, and according to the Daily Record, even told her that he'd help her get out of jail. There are some key issues with literally everything she said, except for maybe the last part. Raber saying that she went over to Barbara's house just to scare her makes absolutely no sense. There was nothing to scare her into or out of, and saying that a shotgun accidentally went off is absurd, let alone that it went off while she was standing at the doorway to the room. Barbara's gunshot wound was close range. She was not shot from the doorway. Someone put a shotgun to her chest and pulled the trigger. As far as going home and claiming that she put the gun back into her husband's gun cabinet is something I will never understand. The police never found that 410 shotgun used to kill Barbara, despite the fact that court documents state that Raber had been loaned one years prior to the murder and had purchased one herself just eight months before. While detectives were interrogating Raber again, they were also talking to Eli. And of course, he tried to put the blame onto Raber. Oxygen reports that he told investigators that there was no talking her out of something she wanted to do, admitting that he talked to her about killing Barbara and that he had never tried talking her out of it. According to Murder in Amish Country, by the end of the interrogations, both Eli and Raber were offered a deal to testify against the other for a lesser charge, but only one of them was going to get it. Raber stayed loyal to the man that she had killed for, and Eli rolled on her the first chance he got. Oxygen reports that Eli was able to plead out to complicity so long as he detailed what his testimony would be and told the truth about what really happened in the days and months leading up to and after Barbara's murder. At Raber's trial, Eli took the stand and told the court that he guesses he just didn't love Barbara the way he should have, 
which is the understatement of a lifetime, considering the fact that at that hearing, the Daily Record reports that the world learned that not only had Eli cheated on Barbara with countless women, he had actually left his marriage and the Amish community to live with an English woman for six months before begging for forgiveness and coming back. Eli had also fathered a whole new child with one of the women he cheated on his wife with. Eli's testimony flat out admitted that he and Raber planned Barbara's murder, and he said that he wasn't thinking clearly when they planned it. No shit. That being said, once again, he seemed to throw the weight of the blame on Raber. According to court documents, he said that when he told her about wanting to kill his wife, Raber mentioned the idea of poison and ran with it. Here are just a handful of the searches that Oxygen detailed in a piece that they did on the case. How much poison would kill someone? What kind of poison kills someone faster? How long does it take for poison to kill someone? Can you die from carbon monoxide poisoning? Poison strong enough to kill a human. Fastest poison to kill a person. How do you poison someone? Poisons you can drink. Which poisons kill humans? And does rat poison kill humans? You get the idea, but remember that there were more than 840 of them. At the trial, it was brought up that on two separate occasions, Barbara narrowly escaped a murder plot that she didn't know she was the intended victim of. Eli said that two to three weeks before Barbara was shot and killed, Raber had given him poison pills, but he hadn't used them. In another instance, the Daily Record reports that Raber was actually on the way to kill Barbara when she got scared and backed out. Clearly, that fear didn't last forever, not on the morning of the murder, and it also didn't stop her from trying to divert the investigation after the fact. Remember that strange message on the community phone about Eli being the actual intended target? As it turns out, the Daily Record reports that Raber had actually asked a friend of hers to call and leave that message. Now, I have several questions about why in the actual fuck anyone would ever agree to do that, but he said that he'd been friends with her for six years and never questioned her request. Okay. By the end of Raber's three-day trial, the jury was sent out for deliberations, and it didn't take long before they unanimously found her guilty of aggravated murder. When it came time for sentencing, Raber was given a hefty one at 23 years to life in prison, but with Eli's plea deal, he wound up walking away with a whopping 15-year sentence. After Raber's conviction, her defense filed an appeal claiming that her statements to police during her confession shouldn't have been allowed into court because when she asked, can I have an attorney, they didn't stop questioning her. In an interesting turn of events, the judge acknowledged that they absolutely should have stopped questioning her until she had a lawyer present, but noted that the statements she made to law enforcement weren't what convicted her, that it was the evidence that convicted her and not the claim that she had accidentally shot Barbara from the doorway after only intending to scare her. In the end, the appeal was denied and both Eli and Barbara are still in jail to this day, but Eli won't be there forever. All Barbara Weaver ever wanted was a simple life. One where her only cares in the world were how much she was going to love her children and how much she was going to enjoy doing it with the love of her life by her side. Eli promised that to her, made her think she had it, and then one affair at a time etched away at it until the last one stole everything. 
For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Barbara's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, all your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch, and of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. I'm aware that I can't say community right.